If you have a Bible uh, or a device, <clears throat> open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. We're going to be in the third study in this series uh, called Philippi, simply. And this third one, I've titled the, the, the study Intervention. Now, in our culture, in our, in, in our society, when somebody uses the term intervention, I, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a trigger word for me. If, uh, there used to be, a, I think, a program on television. My wife and I watched a number of times. It was called Intervention. And it was when somebody, uh, somebody's family and friends and all of that, where they would come and they would lovingly confront and they would intervene on behalf of a loved one who had perhaps gotten stuck in drug addiction or, or who was uh, uh, unable to get away from alcoholism or something like that. So it was an intervention. And, and that's true. And that's a good use of the word. But the broad definition of the word intervention is simply it means the action taken to improve the situation of another, to intervene. So the question then becomes, does God intervene in the affairs of man? Is he a personal God or is he an impersonal force? Did he just kind of create the universe and the cosmos and kind of get the earth spinning and kick it off into space and let her rip? Or is he involved in theological terms? And of course, we're going to look at the fact that he is indeed involved intimately involved in the affairs of each of our lives. Uh, theological terms, he is transcendent, yes. What transcendence means is that he is supreme. He is all-powerful. He's God. And he's a big God. Unapproachable in that sense. And yet, through the work of his son, we come to behold him. He's also imminent. Now, not imminent like come quickly, come imminently, but immanent with an A. And what that means is that he is knowable and that he's personal, that he's personally involved, that he offers a personal relationship and he does intervene in the affairs of our lives. I'll give you an example from my own life. Back in September of 1983, I went to a church in Southern Oregon and uh, made a profession of faith. There's a longer story behind that, but uh, it was simply just a, a time where God deeply touched my heart. I, I turned from the old life. I embraced Christ, and I, I left that church a different person. Jesus had become my Savior that day. Well, about three months later, the day after Christmas in 1983, I was driving down a state highway in Northern California, uh, and uh, a guy crossed the highway in front of me, and I was going about uh, 60 miles an hour, 55, 60 miles an hour on this state highway, and I could not avoid hitting his car. Uh, he made an Ill illegal crossing on the highway, and uh, I T-boned him in that sense. And uh, my eight-year-old daughter had been sitting or kind of kneeling between the two captain's chairs, it was a family affair. The, the car was full. It was a VW bus, actually. It was full of family. And when I hit this guy, my head went up and hit the windshield. And I knocked the windshield out. And she was thrown out of the windshield cavity at 60 miles an hour. And she got up. I, I was told this. Now, I ended up tucked neatly under the dash. And the, the VW bus was laying on its roof in the middle of this highway, uh, I was out. And yet I was, it was related to me by someone who was in the vehicle that had not <laughs> gotten thrown under the dash, that she got up, she went skidding down the highway, and she got up and she brushed herself off and walked over and sat down on the median in the middle of the road. When I came to in the emergency room, she was running, she's eight years old, just cute as could be, uh, big brown eyes and and always cheerful, real outgoing kid. And I called her my little spark plug. And she's running around the emergency room wanting to help the doctors uh, <laughs> take care of us. 
what, I, what was related to me was that somebody had shown up right after the accident, never saw him drive up, never saw him drive away, but he helped get everybody out of the vehicle because the gas tank had ruptured and they were worried that the thing was going to explode. But God intervened. On my way home from the hospital, my, I tore my forehead off on the windshield and so I had this big pressure bandage. I looked like I was coming back from war. And on the way home from the hospital, I was praying and I was so thankful. I mean, my little girl, she's here. She's whole. She's well. She didn't have a scratch. She was unhurt. And I was so grateful. And I was just pouring my heart out to the Lord and saying, God, I am just so grateful. Thank you for intervening in the affairs of my, I mean, that was a miracle. There's no explanation, none other than God intervened and he somehow cushioned her ride down that asphalt that day and spared her life. And the Lord showed me, because I kind of like to have control of things, it's just who I am. I have control issues, my wife would tell you, that I'm not going to be able to control everything and that I needed to be able to learn to let go, that I needed to trust. And I, I, I liken that to in September of 1983, Jesus became my savior. But in December, the day after Christmas in 1983, Jesus became my Lord. Tragedy was averted as God intervened. We're going to look at that this morning. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul and Silas. Remember, they'd picked up Timothy along the way in Lystra and they picked up Luke along the way in Troas and they crossed the Aegean Sea and they went up to a town called Philippi. Probably 10,000 or so. We don't know exactly the population. Kind of a medium-sized city. Not a large city like uh, the next city they go to is Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia, which is a large city. But so they go off to Philippi and there they had met a woman named Lydia down at the river who uh, was a God-fearing woman and she had given her life to Christ. She had converted to Christ. She had come into a relationship with him there and, and had the men and, and all go to her house and stay. And that became the first church in Europe. She was the first convert, the first church in Europe at Lydia's house. And the church began to grow and, and the, the spirit of God was being poured out. People's lives were being touched and there was a great work that had begun. Well, during that time, as Paul and the men were going around and preaching the gospel, this slave girl who was possessed with an evil spirit, we looked at it last week, a python spirit. And I'm going to go into that again and catch the, the video or, or the, the podcast or whatever uh, on that if you want more information. A fascinating story because there was more going on than her just being a fortune teller. Anyway, she's following these guys around and she's screaming in it. I believe it was probably an ethereal voice, not, not her own voice. Uh, it's imp implied in the text that she is screaming at them through this demon who had possessed her, uh, that uh, uh, these men, she's, she was saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And that looks good, sounds good on the surface. However, there were some several things wrong with it. Again, not going to go into detail on that, but she was essentially trying to put herself in a place of spiritual superiority, or she was trying to identify with these guys so that they could, she could water down the message because to her, the most high God was Zeus. To them, the most high God was, of course, the God of the Bible. So we discussed last week also that Paul, with this girl, she followed him around for days and he didn't immediately rebuke the spirit. Uh, and, and notice he doesn't rebuke her. He rebukes the spirit within her. But it, it says after uh, many days that he became greatly annoyed. <laughs> he was getting ticked off. He didn't like the fact this girl's running around screaming after them everywhere they're going. And so he turns and he casts the spirit out of this little girl. And it says that the spirit left her that very hour. In other words, immediately this evil spirit came out. Well, when the girl's masters discovered they lost their profit from fortune telling, which is how they were using her, they were employing her to do this, charging a fee, nifty little way to make some extra money. Well, when the spirit was gone, she was useless to them. <laughs> and so out of spite, they hauled Paul and Silas before the magistrates of the city. 
Now, the magistrates had broad powers. They also had these officers that worked for them called lictors. Uh, we looked at that. And they ordered the lictors to severely beat the men with rods. We talked about that as well. The, the fascia, uh, the, the, the bundle of rods with an axe. It, you see it even in current stuff. Uh, as it relates to Rome. We talked about the Lincoln Memorial, the back of the Liberty Dimes that we have, all of that. They had a, a thing of the fascia because it's, it's a symbol of government power. Anyway, they beat these guys. And I mean, they severely beat these guys. That would not have been a light thing. And they command that they're thrown into prison. So now in verse 24, we read, having received such a charge, the jailer put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, not just the prison, but the inner prison. Again, we talked last week about the three levels of the prison where the outer prison would be for, you know, mild offenders, you know, parking tickets or whatever. (laughs) But um, the inner prison was reserved for hardened criminals. It was the dungeon. There was no light. There was no air circulation. There were no facilities. And it would have stunk. It would have been a horrible place. It would have been a wretched place to get pushed into. And so here these guys are. And then it says too that that when he commanded that their feet be put into stocks, this was the stocks were a form of Roman torture. Because... Uh, again, the, the contraption that they used would spread their feet as far apart as possible. It would make them it, it impossible for them to have any posture except to actually bear weight on their own wounds. Would have been horrible. So this guy had he'd taken brutal steps to make sure that they not only were they guarded, but that they were going to suffer. Puts them in the Tullianum. That was the inner prison. Verse 25, begin there. This is where we left off last week. It says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now that's a fascinating scene. I don't know about you, but there's a good chance I would not have been singing at that time. It says the prisoners were listening to them. Do you ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that the world watches you? The people that you maybe work with or people that are in your circle or perhaps in your children's circle or whatever, that, that the world watches and they're checking you out. They want to see how you're going to respond in a given situation, especially if they know that you're a believer. Unbelievers are always looking for a crack. Ah, yeah, yeah, you, that faith you talk about. The prisoners are listening to these guys and evidently they had come to know that they were, they were covered with bloody welts and stripes that uh, would have been swollen and bruised up. I mean, these guys, again, they were severely beaten with the rods. And what the prisoners are hearing, these guys are singing hymns and they're praying. Now, hymns in that time, they were likely songs of worship. Uh, also, could be you could, you could pray through the hymns, because they were derived from usually from the Hallel Psalms. I don't know if you know much about the Psalms, but there are certain ones that are called, if you're reading the Psalms, this is a Psalm of Ascents. It would be a song that Israel sang on their way ascending into Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's nestled in a bunch of hills. So no matter which direction you came from, you ascended into Jerusalem. And the Psalms of Ascent were songs, they were hymns that the, that the Jews sang as they went to the national feasts. And they would be singing these as they went up the hill. And Psalms 113 to 118 are Psalms of Ascent. Uh, here's a couple of lines from Psalm 118. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. And the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, can you imagine Paul and Silas? And we don't know exactly what they're singing, but there's a good chance they were singing things like this because they were probably singing through the scripture. As these other prisoners are listening, they're thinking, I don't get this. 
How are these guys so joyful? How are they singing? They're praying. They're probably praying and thanking God for delivering that little girl from the demon that had been possessing her and and troubling her. They're probably praying that, (laughs) praising God for the work that he's doing in Philippi. They have no account for themselves. That would have gotten the prisoner's attention. All of this demonstrated their faith. That God, that, that God's will would be accomplished, come what may. They understood that it was come what may. And very often, I think, especially in the Western church, it's, well, as long as I'm comfortable. They were anything but comfortable. Remember, also, these guys don't see the end of this. If we read it, I know that they're going to come out of this pretty well. I know that God's going to move, but they didn't have that advantage. They're living it. They got beaten and thrown into this dungeon, which they would probably understand was reserved for the the worst of the worst. And they don't know if they're ever coming out. They don't know if the the, the guards are going to show up and 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 essentially execute them. They don't have any. There's no answers to the questions in their lives right now. But they only know that God had called them to Philippi. Remember the Macedonian call when Paul had the dream, the vision that the guy was saying, please come to Macedonia. We need you to come here. And they talked about, he talked about it with the other guys and they decided, yeah, you know, God's calling us to go to Macedonia. We need to go to Philippi. And so they did know that they were sure of what was going on in their lives in the big picture, but they had no answers for what was going on in the immediate future. Verse 26, so as they're singing and they're, they're singing these hymns and they're praying and all, the other prisoners are, are really starting to pay attention like, what is with these guys? In the middle of all of that, so suddenly there was a great earthquake. In the Greek, it's megaseismos. It, it was a big earthquake. The earth began to shake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Doesn't take a rocket science to know that this is God intervening in the lives of those involved through a natural event. However, he's reached into supernaturally direct the circumstances of many. Remember, it's the intervention. It's, it's the actions of one to affect a better outcome for the other. And that's what's going on here. Now in Acts chapter 5 uh, and Acts chapter 12, we see that God delivered the apostles from prison a couple of times. The first was the apostles. The second time was Peter. Uh, He used, uh, but he did that by means of an angel. But here in Philippi, God's intervention would give Paul the opportunity to bring the gospel of Christ to both the Gentile prisoners and to their jailer. He would also, and we're going to look at this, something that I think is fascinating in this, is God's going to use this to open up the gospel to the entire city. But I want you to understand something. See the grace here. Did the inmates, did the other inmates in that jail, did they deserve salvation? Did did the cruel jailer somehow merit God's love? Folks, we do well to understand that he who is forgiven much, loves much. We were watching a thing on television last night and a, a woman, a believer, was saying, you know, if I owe somebody $10 and I'm forgiven... Yeah, but then if the next person owes a million dollars and they're forgiven, who's going to be more grateful? And she went on to say, I have been forgiven a whole lot. And each of us have been forgiven a whole lot. Understand the nature of the gospel. This is the gospel going to a bunch of guys who had committed crimes. A bunch of guys who were there in the jail, probably most, if not all of them, for good reason. Paul and Silas, the exception. They got put in there on trumped up charges that were totally illegal. We'll look at that. But the earthquake comes, opens the doors, loosens the chains. It wasn't the earthquake that did that. It was the Lord. It was God reaching in and saying, let me, let me shuffle things up here a bit. Now, what was going on with the jailer at that time? Verse 27, the keeper of the prison, the jailer, uh, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he supposed the prisoners had fled. Obviously, you see all the doors are open and you know that these guys are under lock and key. You're going to make some conclusions there. 
It says that he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. That's reasonable for this guy. Roman law was such, and we saw it. Remember, we looked at it. When we looked at what Herod did to the 12 men who were charged with, with guarding Peter, he had them executed. Because Roman law was such as that if you were a jailer and you lost the prisoners in your charge, you were subject to death, period. This guy knew that it would not be a pleasant death. And so he was about ready to just take things into his own hands. He drew his sword and was about to take his own life. Now, I have a picture of what's called a machaira here. This is, it's a small sword. This is the same sword, same type of sword. It's a personal weapon. This, is, this would be like if you're looking at firearms, like a sidearm. Okay, this is a small personal sword that you'd carry strapped to your side. This is not the same as a broadsword. Now that was called a rampa. Now when we see in the book of Revelation that Jesus comes riding in, he's going to do battle with the kings of the earth, and it says a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. That's a rampa. That's a big sword. Here, this is a little sword. This is the same, like I said, the same kind that Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane pulled out, and he sliced off Malchus, the Greek guy's ear, and Jesus picks it up and sticks it back on. Great story there. But the point is, is that this guy draws the sword. He's about to kill himself. He's about to commit suicide here because he saw that the doors had opened. And, you know, I look at that gang and I think, how often do things appear in our lives? I know there have been times in my life where they just seem absolutely hopeless. How often do we despair? Do we come to a place of thinking, man, there's just no way out? I think it's tragic that the human response to hopelessness and despair often is the taking of one's own life. Now that's doubly tragic if that person is unsaved because then the God of this world has gotten them and there's no redemption available. I was looking at statistics and suicide rates since the year 2000 have gone up over 35%. Over 48,000 in 2021 alone in the United States. Teen suicide is off the charts. Now, I understand that there are a number of factors that contribute to that. And I'm not here to blame it all on one thing. However, I think it's fascinating, too, that the percentage of U.S. adults who belong to a church or another religious institution has plunged during the same time frame, by more than 20%. Folks, we're in the business of giving hope. God's word is filled with hope. God's word is filled with encouragement. God's word demonstrates to us over and over and over again that there are things going on in the unseen realm that directly affect our lives. It's not just the intervention that you see. It's God intervening in ways that we're not even aware of. Because he is intimately involved. He does love us. He does see the end from the beginning. And he does look out for our welfare. But if we're not in a place where we're being exposed to that, if we are not in a place where we see that the God of this world is being lifted up, and that he is being seen, then people really don't have any other choice but to act out on that despair. Like I said, it's a complicated issue and I'm not blaming it all on that. However, I think that there is a direct correlation to the fact that, that God has been largely removed from our society and that people left to themselves are left to hopelessness and despair. Verse 28 says, But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm for we are all here. Now again, I think that's remarkable. It doesn't say that he ordered the other prisoners to stay put. I believe, again, and I'm into interpretation on this, but I believe that, that his, his and Silas's prayers and their singing, their whole attitude, their whole demeanor as they're in, their, in the stocks sitting on their wounds and probably in agony, but just having the joy of the Lord in the midst of very difficult circumstances, I believe that that really affected these inmates. We don't know what they prayed, but they may have been praying directly for some of them that they come to know Jesus. Regardless, none of the inmates left their cells. 
Paul knows, and I don't know how he knew. Somehow he knew that the jailer was about to commit suicide. And remember, he's in a darkened dungeon. Did the Holy Spirit reveal that to him? Good chance. Don't know. He couldn't see. But we see an awesome example of God intervening in the life of this jailer. He uses another human being. He uses Paul to intervene. Hold it. Don't do it. You're not in trouble. God has this. Verse 29, then he called for a light. (laughs) Again, remember, it's dark in there. This is the jailer. He called for a light. He ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Do you think this guy's changed a little bit? Think about it. <laughs> what, what went on in this man's mind in the moments after the earthquake when, and between that and when he heard Paul's voice as he's getting ready, uh, he's got his Machaira out and he's getting ready to take his own life. Think of the realization that he had uh, just the day before how he had treated these same men with cruel disregard. Yeah, the the the... the, the magistrates just said, lock him up and keep good eye on him. He didn't tell him to torture them. He didn't tell him to put him in the inner prison. That was all the jailers doing. He was like, ha, yeah, I'm going to make an example out of these guys. They got made a public example out of uh, there in the town square. And now I'm going to make sure that we follow through. And he did, he went to the most extreme measures that he could in making sure that these men were not just uncomfortable, but they were being tortured. The realization that he had after being so cruel, now realizing that they had somehow been instrumental in saving his life. Paul's would have been the last voice he expected to hear as he's getting ready to do himself in. And yet he does. In just those few moments, he was a changed man. He runs in, he falls down, he's trembling before them. Then he brought them out in verse 30 and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, it, it, it's interesting too, because he's been the sort of the, the big cheese here, but he addresses Paul and Silas with a term of utter respect. Uh, the word sirs there means lords or masters, not the Lord, but lords. Uh, he's a saying, he, he's essentially addressing them as being over him now. When moments before, he was very definitely over them. And he says, what must I do to be saved? His life had been saved physically, but he also knew that he needed more. My daughter's life had been saved physically, but I knew she would need more. And she did. Before she went to heaven in 2009, she came, she had a a beautiful, wonderful relationship with Christ. And I'm grateful eternally. Somehow this guy understood that these men had the answers that he sought. Verse 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's the heart of the gospel. Truly the heart of God is seen in the simplicity and the beauty of this statement. All you got to do is believe. You don't have hoops to jump through. You don't have some religious mandate to attain He says, just simply believe, just simply trust that Jesus went to that cross for you, that he wore your sins and that when he died, he died in your place. But it doesn't end there because when he rose from the dead, he guaranteed eternity for any who would come. That's why he's called. The Bible calls him the firstborn of the resurrection. And Paul and Silas there, in the prison, talking with the jailer, said, all you have to do, because the guy says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do, Paul? Remember now, there was another guy that asked Jesus the same thing, the rich young ruler. He came and he said, you know, what do I need to do? Jesus, I've kept all of the laws from my youth up. Look at me. Look how wonderful I've been. What else do I need to do? Whole different attitude of the heart, by the way. This guy was basing it on him, the rich young ruler was. And that's why Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and then come and follow me. And it says the man went away sad, troubled, despairing, because he owned a lot. And it wasn't that in order to belong to Christ, you have to get rid of everything. That's a 
terrible misrepresentation of what's being said. What he was saying is if you're going to base it on what you do, there's always going to be one more thing to do. You can't do enough. But here, Paul is clear. He knows that this jailer has gone from being the guy in charge to being humbled. And he's saying, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to simply trust. You need to believe. Turn from that old life and embrace Christ. And folks, if you here or people online, if that has never, that transaction has not taken place in its fullness, it's, it's more than, well, I believe in God. The Bible says, well, the demons believe and they shudder. But it's always just repent and believe. Siamese twins there. Turn from the old life. Trust Christ. Verse 33, and the jailer took them the same hour of that night and, and he washed their stripes. Uh, and he immediately, uh, he and all of his family were baptized. Now when the, he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. What a celebration. To go from the depths of despair, to go from knowing that there was no way out to go from there's nothing I can do. The Romans are going to kill me if I don't take care of that myself to rejoicing with his family, to knowing that not only am I going to go to heaven, but my whole family has come to believe that his household was filled with joy because of these two prisoners that I was so cruel to yesterday, but have done nothing but show me grace and love and mercy today because God has touched my heart and I see it. There's a tenderness in the way that he treats these men. He comes in, he washes their wounds and he says, here, are you hungry? Let me, let me get you something to eat. Folks, this is completely a work of the Holy Spirit. This guy goes from hopelessness and despair to kindness and rejoicing. He goes from being the authoritarian, as I mentioned, to that of being a servant. How can I serve you? He goes from futility, life's not worth living, to faith. I have purpose. My life has meaning. My life will have depth. I have understanding. I know God and he knows me. It's worth noting also that baptism, that outward demonstration of that which had taken place in their hearts, that of being separated from this world to God followed their conversion. A lot of baptizing going on in Philippi. We saw that with Lydia and the ladies prior to this. Verse 35, And when it was day, the magistrates sent to the officers saying, Let those men go. Oh, how noble of them. (laughs) Now, the officers here, the literal translation of that is rod holders. So, Those are the lictors. This is the same guys that had beaten the daylights out of these guys the day before. And the magistrates say, here, now you need to go on over to the prison, tell the the jailer there to let these guys go. (laughs) We don't know how or why the magistrates were doing this, uh, why they sent the lictors to release them. Perhaps uh, word had gotten to them that these men had been mistreated. Perhaps Lydia and some of the others, she was a prominent woman in the city. Perhaps they had gone and said, hey, wait a minute, they were not breaking the law. We don't know. Perhaps they figured that they had been made an example of the day before and the matter was concluded. Regardless, the magistrates send the officers, the the rod bearers over to the jail and they say, cut them loose. Verse 36, I love this part. This is like one of my favorite parts in the entire book of Acts. So the keeper of the prison reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. You know, I would be thinking, right on, I'm out of here. You don't have to tell me twice, where's the door? That's not what happens. God is still moving. God is still intervening. It doesn't say that, but we're going to see that he still is because he directs Paul in a certain way here that I think is absolutely marvelous. It says, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. (laughs) 
Let them come themselves and get us out. Yeah, I love the Apostle Paul. This guy had grit. You know, he just knew how to stick it to these guys. He's saying, you know what? No, we're not leaving. You want us to leave? Fine. You call us out publicly. Let them come and ask us to leave themselves. But his claim, he's making a legal claim here, true, because they were beaten without due process. Their rights as Roman citizens, they've been seriously violated. That's true. But I also want to point something out here, too. This is not unforgiveness. Paul's going to ensure that Christians have the right to assemble and speak freely in Philippi. That's part of what's going to happen as a result of this. Never again. He would not want to see or hear believers in Philippi being brought before these men to be humiliated or tortured. He says, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. What happened was illegal. I'm going to make sure that you guys know it. I'm going to make sure the city knows it. Verse 38, and the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Yeah, well, there goes the pension plan. This is a serious violation of their colonial legal status, really. Remember, Philippi is a Roman colony as though it were Roman ground. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it worked. The Ius Italicum, we've talked about that. And they knew that these guys being Romans on Roman ground, that you just don't go beat them up. If word of this got to the consul, by the way, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, about 80 miles to the, to the west. And if word of this got to him, minimally, these guys would lose their jobs. They would be fired. <laughs> like you are so fired. Minimally. But probably they would be subjected to some form of punitive stuff that might have even been the similar to or worse than the guys that they beat up. The Romans didn't mess around. They used the rods and they used them on people that were offenders. And these guys had created a, a, a sizable offense. They had embarrassed Rome. They had overstepped. Paul, I think it's fascinating too, because now by leveraging his Roman citizenship, Paul's bringing the issue out in the open. He says, Ahem, didn't you know that we're Romans? So what he's doing is forcing the magistrates uh, now to openly concede that the gospel preaching that they were doing wasn't illegal. Score one for the team. And the fledgling Philippian church would be legitimized. All of that is happening here because Paul... Again, I believe completely directed by the Holy Spirit says, no, we're not going to leave. We have some business to tend to. And it wasn't just, you guys need to understand that you violated us, but you made this a public spectacle. And so this needs to be handled in the public arena. Verse 39, they came and they pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them, (laughs) I I always want to insert pretty please. (laughs) <laughs> to depart from the city. <laughs> so, so you know, Paul, he really puts these guys on the spot. And, and, and they're, now they're trembling. Now they're thinking, oh, you know, my height is on the line. And we've got a problem here. He says he's not leaving until we come over and we deal with this personally. We can't just send our, our representative, can't just send the rod bearers. So they go out. <laughs> And they go to the prison themselves. But what this amounts to, folks, is a public apology. Because now the men are free to go. The church has been secured and the lives of many people have been impacted and changed. And the name of Christ has been honored. All of that with what looked like dire circumstances for Paul, dire circumstances for Silas, dire circumstances for the jailer, probably not good circumstances for the rest of the inmates. All of this is affected because God intervened. Because God said, you know what? I'm not letting this unfold in the natural. I'm going to exert some supernatural influence on this situation and on these circumstances. And he does. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Um, now this is, by the way, this is the last mention of Lydia in the New Testament. However, the church at Philippi would thrive 
for generations to come. I was reading some of the history of the church. It went on at least into the fourth century and then the Catholic church kind of got weirded out on them. But uh, the point is, is that the church would grow, it would flourish. And, and a great deal of that is because Paul capped the persecution on the spot when he, when he took the magistrates on. He said, you can't do this. Now, evidently also Luke remained at Philippi while Paul and Silas and Timothy departed for Thessalonica. Again, about 80 miles to the west. And they would, things would go well for them there for about three weeks. And then they'd try to kill him again. They have to go from there to Berea. And that's where he leaves uh, Silas and Timothy. And he heads on to Corinth. We'll get to all that as we go. But I want to just, as we wrap up, I have three questions here. And uh, <laughs> y'all know me. It's time to take this and drive it home. Uh, or as we say in, in, in pastors or preachers' terms, it's time to land the plane. The first is, what is your perspective? When Paul stood up to the Roman magistrates, it wasn't out of stubbornness or unforgiveness, as I mentioned. He wasn't in the flesh. And yeah, well, yeah, I'm really angry now, and I'm going to show you. That's not what's going on here. I believe that he was operating from a kingdom perspective. He wasn't looking out for him. If he was looking out just for himself, he just said, okay, we're out of here. Bye. And he and Silas would have been gone. But he's also looking out for the interests of others. When the government openly overstepped, he openly pushed back. I love it when I see that. I was reading this weekend about the guy that that the FBI raided his home and hauled him off to jail because it... He was a, an abortion activist at a clinic and, and that they, he, he prevailed in his trial and now he's turning around, he's pushing back. Saying, you guys illegally did that. And, and I, I think good for him. He's somebody I need to pray for. Somebody we need to pray for because he's standing up. Paul stood up. There is a time, folks, I talked about it last week and I don't need to belabor it again in depth, but there is a time where we push back. There's a time where if God's law comes into conflict with man's law, we go with God's law. We go with what God has instructed us to do. And we've got to be careful on that. The last thing we want to do is, is be insurrectionists and get into, and that's a popular word, I don't want to go there. But the point is, is that there's a place where we stand up. And, and this is a great example of what it is to stand up. So what's your perspective? Is it a kingdom perspective? The first concern that Paul had was he wanted to reestablish a reputation of the name of the Lord in Philippi. He, you know, essentially he's saying, you've shamed us, you've shamed our God before the city and you've done it publicly. Now I want there to be a public restoration of the God and of the message that we're declaring because we were not breaking the law. The second concern that Paul had was for the people's reputation. He wanted the magistrates to think twice before they ever tried to do what they'd done to another Christian. As I mentioned, they weren't stirring dissent. They weren't causing division among the Romans. The guys got mad because they took, he took away their ability to make a profit out of a demon-possessed girl. And that's what the whole thing was started. It, and that never gets mentioned to the magistrates. The whole thing was just trumped up. It was a false narrative. And there's a word that, yeah, we use now... There's a lot of those floating around out there. But Paul exposes it. And he exposes it on godly principles. They gotten hauled in because they were preaching Christ and the cross and the love of God. Third concern that Paul had was for the people's perception. In Acts chapter 22, and I think this is interesting. Paul, he's in Jerusalem this time around. He's about to be scourged by a Roman commander. Uh, if you remember the story, he's talking to the Jews and the minute he says the word Gentiles, they just completely come unglued and they want to kill him. They literally want to tear him apart. And the, the Roman commander comes in and he, he says, well, he orders the guys to scourge him so they can get some answers. What's this guy doing? This rabble rouser and all that. And Paul, at that point, he says, hey, wait a second, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> Why didn't he do that here? Why didn't he do that the day before when the magistrates and the lictors and all of that were there? 
And I, you know, I, I have to reach into interpretation to put this forth, and I'll just put this forth. It may or may not be the case. But I believe that Paul didn't want to lean on his privilege. He was privileged as a Roman citizen, and he could have escaped the rod by asserting his privilege. However, he wanted to demonstrate rather that his trust was not in his privilege. His trust was in the Lord. And that he wanted people to understand. He knew that there were a great many people in Philippi that weren't Roman citizens. And that that he could have asserted that where they maybe couldn't. Again, he has a kingdom perspective here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, we read, and Paul, the same guy, writing here years later, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of, uh, may be of God and not of us. He wanted God's power to be seen in this, not his own power, not his own rights. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Crushed, we're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. What's his perspective? His perspective is, I'm trusting the Lord. I'm not trusting Caesar. I'm not trusting my citizenship. I trust my king. So what's my perspective? What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in the government? I am from the government. I'm here to help. Am I trusting in the Lord? The second thing, as we wrap up, the second question I have is, where's your focus? The Philippian jailer's focus had been elevated. That's for sure. (laughs) He came to see the undeserved love of God for him in the midst of circumstances which appeared to be utterly hopeless. The question becomes, is your focus on your circumstances or is it on the Lord? As I mentioned, the suicide rate has skyrocketed because people don't put their focus on the right stuff. When I am walking with the Lord, I absolutely walk in the security and the knowledge that this is a temporary thing. This life is a vapor. It appears for a moment. It passes away. I don't care how hard it gets. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care how despairing it becomes, how hopeless it appears in human terms. My hope is in him. That's where my focus is. Hopefully your focus is not on your ability or your inability to affect the circumstances around you. Paul would uh, later write back to the church at Philippi in his letter to the Philippians, which is essentially a thank you letter because they, they built such a wonderful relationship there. In Philippians chapter four, he speaks of having learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstances he found himself in. Whether he was abased like we see here, or whether he abounded. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. Why? Because his focus was on heavenly things. His focus was on kingdom things. I've heard in the past, well, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And and I, I look at that statement and I think, well, one word comes to mind, hog wash. No, be heavenly minded because you will be more earthly good. Don't limit God in your life. It's interesting. He and Silas refused to give in to despair. They refused to give in to unbelief in their own hearts. They chose to not doubt their guidance or the question. They, 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 we're not going to question God's providence in this. We're not going to question him at all. They, again, they couldn't see the outcome, but they trusted They knew that God was in control. And if this was the end of the line, they would know that that was what part of what God's will was. They weren't worried about it because they knew where their lives were held. Rather, what they did was they drove back the darkness. Uh, They changed the spiritual atmosphere in that jail because they deliberately invited the Holy Spirit to fill it. They trusted that God would indeed intervene even though they didn't know how or when or what, to what extent, but they trusted that he would. The other inmates took notice. The third thing, as we wrap up here, is where's your hope? Paul's hope, I don't believe that his hope was in his Roman citizenship. Good as that was. Served him well in Jerusalem later on, but he didn't think that it was worth him asserting in this circumstance because there are greater things at stake. His hope wasn't in his level of personal comfort. 
The jailer discovered that his hope didn't rest in his ability to carry out his duties. <laughs> that turned into a, a fool's errand in a hurry with the earthquake. And we can only assume that the other prisoners in the Philippian jailer, or jail there, that they probably, many or if not most, had no hope at all. I'm here. This is the end of the line. I'm in a Roman jail. Not good. All of that was the case until in each of these people's lives, God intervened. God stepped in. God worked the circumstances to where it went from futility to hope. And my daughter went flying down a state highway. She should have been killed. No question. Zero question. And the lessons for me were many coming out of that event. The word of God is filled, folks, with messages of divine intervention. That's what we're talking about here. Why? Because we need hope. We live in a world, I love the, the, the saying, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I leak. And I do. There are times where my, and, and praise God that as time goes on, the amount of time between my knee-jerk reaction and the time we go, oh, okay, settle down, John. God's got this. Okay. You know, that's definitely shorter than it was years ago. But we have these examples. We need hope. We need a constant reminder that he's working for our good, even when it doesn't look good at all. This is a great example of that. didn't look good at all for a lot of people. And yet God was working for their good. He's working for our good. And he's doing it in every circumstance, on every level. And he's doing it all the time in our lives. Whether we see it or not, the reason he's doing it is we're learning to trust. I don't know about you, but I want to trust him more as time goes by. I want to lean into him further as I grow in my relationship with him. I want to love him more as I see that he loves me first. What a great account, folks, of God's intervening hand in the lives of these men and women. And what a great reminder of his intervening hand in our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning, uh, Lord, that you are personal. Yes, you're powerful, and yes, you're separate from and infinitely above us and supremely in charge. And yet, you're also imminent, that you're personal, and that you're relational, and that you desire to deepen the relationship, the personal relationship that each of us has with you. I pray, Lord, for each one in this room and each one online that is watching that you would work in our hearts, that you would have your way, that you would find hearts that are yielded to the working, the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, you'd pour your spirit out on our lives, that you would give us great strength, give us hope, give us perspective, give us that ability, Father, to see beyond the physical, to see that you're in charge, that you're working, that you're affecting your purposes. We're just weak humans. As my friend says, we're just little humans. And yet, Lord, we yield to you. We yield to your power. We yield to your love in our lives. I pray for each of us as we go forward from here that you would bring to our remembrance the things we've looked at this morning and that we would find great encouragement in our relationship with you. We give our hearts to you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.